0: Christine Greenwald, a mental health therapist in private practice in Bellefontaine, Ohio. Today I'm interviewing Heather Kaleeri. I am excited to have you listen to today's interview. I have to say, even though obviously I'm writing on my substack pretty much most weeks, to be honest, I really don't see myself as a creative person. I don't have great decorating tastes like my friends, can't assemble an amazing Lego structure out of nowhere like my husband can, and when my child clients want me to paint with them, I pretty much just paint the same mountain scene every time. Turns out, I needed to hear this interview with Heather. Heather has some messages to tell us that we are all actually creative. We talk about her book in this interview called Ordinary Creativity, How to Survive with Joy. She unpacks how eugenicists, misogynists, and racists skewed our understanding of creativity. She reframes human ingenuity to include experiences like caregiving, disability, and suffering, and helps us claim our way of being creative with fierce and unapologetic delight. I hope that as you listen to the interview, you will be surprised and maybe find that you too have a little bit more creativity than you are giving yourself credit for. Hi, Heather. Thank you so much for being on Recasting Religious Trauma. and here to tell us about your book, Ordinary Creativity. Um, I was wondering if you could just give us maybe a little bit of background about what sparked your interest to write a book about creativity.
1: Yeah, so I think uh, one answer is that creativity has just been a running theme in my life since I was little. I grew up in the performing arts, so I was always around like theater people and dance people and so that was always a big part of our families like my like extracurriculars growing up. And then also my parents, my mom was always a very accomplished cook and she's a seamstress. My dad was very into woodworking. And then later my sister became a working artist. So like I was just surrounded by very creative people, but the dynamics around that in my family were not always healthy. Like my kind of creativity, the performing kind was like the good kind. Whereas my sister like made art that disturbed people. And my parents were always like kind of Like she sort of exposed some of the not so healthy dynamics in her family through her through her art well before I felt comfortable doing that. And so that was very like I was always very nervous about that. And so there was this I always had this sense that some kinds of creativity were okay, and some kinds of creativity were not okay, And even like I would compare myself to my sister because I really respected how great of an artist she was you know, even as a child, and I never could do those things. And so I felt like, well, I'm not really creative, because I can't do things like Katie can do them, or I'm not really, my brother also was very good at building things and, and like, brilliant at Legos, you know, like when you're in third grade, and all you want to be able to do is make cool things out of Legos. And it's just like, you know, like comparing yourself to other people and coming up short was something that I felt on both sides of as a kid, right? Like that, I was held up in our family as the successful one. But at the same time, I looked at my siblings and it was like, I just really wish I could be like them. So from a very early age, I just noticed that there were weird power dynamics in creativity that kind of made some people seem more successful and that it wasn't predictable. Like, how can you be on both sides of that dynamic at the same time? Like, that was always very confusing to me. And then you know i I've been I've been a writer for twenty years. i I read I don't know if you know the writer Anne Lamont. It seems like every writer does. And I read her book, Bird by Bird, and like all of these creativity books have been so helpful to me. And yet so many of them also produced a lot of anxiety in me. Like I wasn't doing it right, right? Like that idea of like these experts are telling me how to get better at my craft was both super helpful. And also, like, I could never possibly live up to that. Or if I don't do th- things that the way they do, or if it doesn't work for me like it worked for them, then clearly I've fallen short and I've done something wrong. And so there was sort of this love hate relationship, too, of like these books that tell me how to be creative and yet fill me with anxiety. So that was always really confusing. And so, fine. And it's also just like one of those things where you're like, I think every creative person secretly just wants to tell everybody like write their own creativity book you know like we all just want to be the expert (laughs) for once even though we feel like total total fools you know so finally I was like you know what what the heck I'd love to write a book about the anxiety that I feel about creativity like what is the what is that point of like Because also like most people that write creativity books, they're already the experts. They're already famous for being creative. And I am totally not famous for being creative, except in my own household, you know? So it's like, what (laughs) does it look like for people who are not like, quote unquote, success stories to write a book about the value of being creative? And that was interesting to me. So that's why I ended up writing it.
0: Yeah. Okay. So you're tired of having to rank creativity as like, this one's better or more important than the other one or like having to do all this comparison and just make it more accessible to ordinary people. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So I was very curious. Like I had no idea about this thing that you wrote, Um, but that like eugenicists and, and like racist, like racism has all been used to like kind of rank, these sorts of like certain creative pursuits above other ones or like above other people doing creativity um and that was surprising and interesting to me I'm wondering if you can maybe tell us a little bit more about like supremacist systems I guess in general and
1: creativity yeah yeah so that was a surprise to me too it was not something that I new going into researching this book. But before I started working on this book, I was working on a book proposal about normalcy in general. And when I started looking at the idea of normalcy, like the idea of norms were established established by early statisticians, okay? Like that is where that term is used, first came to be used. And a lot of early statisticians were also eugenicists. Like those two disciplines grew at the same time. So I'd already done some Research on eugenics and had learned some of the big players in the early eugenesis movement just because of that earlier research. And the guy who came up with the term eugenic- eugenics is a guy named Francis Galton, who was an early statistician. He was involved in early forensics. He created differential psychology, like very like polymath, brilliant guy, right? Mm-hmm. And so when I started researching creativity, I got this big book called the Cambridge Handbook of Creativity. It's like a scholarly, scholarly tome on creativity that is about the most unfun thing you've ever read in your entire life. And I started- Our, our, a- our listeners should know that you're holding your hands like multiple or your fingers yeah, multiple inches like apart. it's like a brick, right? It's just really, it's what you think a scholarly- book on creativity would be like, right? Like super dull. But the first chapter was all about the history of creativity and it was so fascinating. And the thing that stopped me is I got a, a few pages in and they said the first per- the first person to formally study creativity was Francis Galton. And I said, "Wait, what? Hmm. The guy who invented eugenics was the first person to formally study creativity." And basically, Francis Galton was very interested. The whole idea of differential psychology is what makes human beings, some human beings have different abilities than others. And he really thought that people who were wealthy and tall and male and Mm -hmm. white were inherently better, that that was why so many geniuses came from wealthy, established families, that Mm. because it ran in their blood. And so therefore, super genius, creative people were better and were like masters of the race, and they should be supported and encouraged to have more babies, because that would improve you know, the white race. These were like explicit things that he said, right? Wow. I feel like he's missing a couple variables. um, Possibly. (laughs) I mean, he was quote unquote a genius. So we'll just take him (laughs) at face value. He was very convinced of his own genius, by the way. Oh goodness. And I had read, uh, you know, books on talent, books on other stuff, and people would mention Galton in passing as having contributed important things to our understanding of genius and creativity and never mentioned the fact that he was a Mm -hmm. eugenicist. And I thought, and then I started doing, I mean, like if you research art history, you learn about... Like, okay, there's this whole thing in art history where like decorative arts, like stuff that women do, like quilts or clothes making or home decoration are seen as less than the real arts, which are like painting and, you know, representational painting. So a lot of women artists never got their due because they would make quilts. And why is Mm -hmm. it that we think quilts are not a form of abstract art? Right. Like, why do we think that if it's made with fabric, it's not actual visual art, but if Mm. it's made out of, you know, if Mondrian makes a thing out of geometric squares made out of paintings, you know, made out of paint, that suddenly that matters. But if you put it on your bed, it doesn't matter. Like, there is just so much weird supremacy built into visual Mm -hmm. arts there's like colonial when there was during colonialism a lot of art was stolen from like say mm-hmm. different african civilizations and then artists like picasso were inspired by it or artists were inspired by japanese japanese art and they would say that the artists who basically stole and were riffing off these other arts were the real geniuses but none of the original artists or their cultures were ever credited for the ideas that that inspired these you know, inspired Picasso and other, and other artists of, you know, the modernist period. So there's just all this weird power dynamic going on in art that says that some things are more important than others, then some things count as art and others don't. And those trends, we accept them uncritically. Like it had never occurred to me that a quilt might be an artwork, right? Uh-huh. I could Unless never make it, one. <laughs> Right. I mean, it's really difficult. It's difficult technically and like putting the colors together. It's not easy, but that doesn't count. And why, why doesn't it count? So the idea of like more things count as art than we think and Mm -hmm. power dynamics play into that. Most definitely people who are wealthy are more likely to be seen as quote unquote real artists. I just put, okay, sorry, I'm ranting now, but I just posted something (laughs) today, like back in ancient Greece, you know they had muses for the different kinds of arts i don't know oh. if you knew this but like they basically had like the muse of of epic poetry and the muse of drama and the muse of music and these were the like sort of the spirits the goddesses who helped that who helped bring art into the world there was no muse for visual art there was no muse of sculpture there was no mm-hmm. muse of painting And that is, I've heard argued, because slaves at that point were the ones who did most of the painting and sculpture. It was considered heavy labor. So it was not valued. And so, therefore, it wasn't seen as real art. It didn't have its own muse. There was one for architecture, there was one for astrology, but there wasn't one for painting. Like, can you even imagine that now? Like, people are like, of course that's art. But it's all Uh culturally based and it's really based on power. So I think when we unpack that, creativity becomes a lot more inclusive. Like we see how it's limiting and we are able to include ourselves a little bit more readily. Like if you're a cook, you're an artist. Who says otherwise? If you're a gardener, who says that that's not a form of art, right? Like it it just can be a lot more expansive and we can have permission to redefine it for ourselves. Yeah. I love that.
0: <laughs> it's like once you start learning about all the people over time who have been excluded from this like title of artist or or creative or whatever, you're like, "What?
1: What's going on?" It's it's kind of crazy and it's like it fills me with grief because there've yeah. just been so many people whose work has been overlooked, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I I think today, you know, like some many people, I guess, will refer to themselves as creatives, like, oh, I'm a creative. But I'm guessing, like, you would say, like, you don't feel like that. That's for the people who, like, really know that they do, quote, creative work. But really, more of us can be doing that in all of our own ways. And that is really nice to think about.
1: Yeah, I I think it's it, it could be more inclusive than it is. And I think a lot of us feel shut out from it. It's like this cool the the place that the cool kids are playing playing at, you know. It's like where the the cool kids party. And I just think that's crap. Like I think it's I think it's made up, and I think more people should know that it's made up.
0: Yeah, yeah. Thank you for bringing that to light. (laughs) (laughs) So switching gears a tiny bit, I guess. Um, But obviously, I write a lot about religious drama. Um, so I, you had one chapter where you're talking a little bit more about how Christians are often told that their creative talents are like supposed to be used for God, like whatever that means, like then this kind of narrowly defined or specific purpose. Um, and if, and if creativity doesn't glorify God with quotes, like it's not, not even worth doing. And there's often like a lot of guilt around if you wanted to be creative outside of those spheres, like, are you just wasting your time and resources whatever um so i'm wondering if you could reflect a little bit about that dynamic um like not just having to think about (laughs) confining your creativity in that way like how do we reclaim creativity for ourselves where we're like it like we don't have to do it for god or like for some higher purpose like we do it because it is so joyful for ourselves
1: too yeah no definitely i mean the the language around, like, okay, so the word talent in the Bible is from the parable of the talents, and it's about how if you don't use your gifts, if you don't use the thing that you were given, that you will be cast into the outer darkness <laughs> where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, and it hasn't been always that the word talent has been interpreted as, like, creative gifts or gifts, like, mm-hmm. personal giftedness. It, it's meant different things to different people, but currently, that's the word The word talent is used to mean that. Like, it's you're talented in in creativity, particularly. And the idea, like, those, those, the people in the parable were slaves, right? Like, Mm -hmm. they are enslaved people who were told, you were given this thing, you better use it, or you're going to be cast out. That is a terrifying story. Like, I don't blame any of us for having just a few hang-ups around the idea of using our talents for God, right? Like, like, and this idea that we are supposed to use our talents for God, it totally puts God in this idea, in this like role of slave master, that we don't have any choice, that we are obligated. And honestly, like, I... Like for those of us, like I've chosen to stay within Christianity, but I think that there are lots of different ways of, you know, some, a lot of people need to leave that language at all, you know, behind completely. If God, like God made this world in a beautiful, creative ways and in, in ways that seem sort of ridiculous, like, okay, for instance, I go outside and one of the most beautiful songs I hear is from this bird called a house finch, Right it's, it's, it's pretty like, it's like widespread. It's a sort of an invasive species for a lot of places. It has the most freaking glorious song you've ever heard. And it is everywhere. It's like, it's ridiculous. If you go out into nature, there's just an abundance of beauty. Like not all places that we're in are beautiful because of, you know, the way our built environment is, but just in nature, like it's, it's ridiculous how much exuberance there is. And it's not there for any, Like it doesn't, it doesn't always seem purposeful, right? Like why does this little bird need to have such a gorgeous song? And I think if we believe in a loving God, we believe in a God who just fills the world with delight just because, because this little bird that is everywhere and is totally ubiquitous, like you see it in the parking lot, right? Of target. It's so, so so common that that bird is beautiful. And the idea is like, if I'm going to believe in a creator God, I want to believe in that kind of God, that that beauty and joy and playfulness and delight are mm-hmm. things that that kind of God would fill the world with because it's just fun, right? Like It's just mm-hmm. fun to sit and listen to a bird just twittering on in the Target parking lot. And even there, there's beauty, right? Where there's just mm-hmm. miles of asphalt and sameness, Right. And if we can't, if we can't get behind the idea of God, we have each been given just the ability to enjoy the tastes and sounds and like tactile things around us to see things like in our clothing, we put on clothes every day that are works of art, right? Someone made them, someone took time with their design Someone had the idea of how the colors should work together. We can appreciate that in our everyday life. If we make a meal, it might not be great, but it nourishes us, right? Which is kind of a miracle if you think about it. (laughs) The the way we live, the everyday things that we do are full of things that were made by somebody and they have beauty and worth in and of themselves. Like if you actually think of the whole global supply chain and what it takes to get like a cheap... (laughs) a cheap t-shirt to our door, it's incredible. The way that people have to work together to produce those things is awe-inspiring. And and being able to participate in that even a small way, that is something that all of us are are, are part of, whether or not we're thinking about it. And I think we should all think about that a little bit more. So whether we're talking about a creator God or not, I think just the fact that human beings are all participating in this global economy that is full of design and attention to detail and skill, we are all participating in that together. and whether or not you feel good at making stuff, you can still choose those things. You can still choose those things in your life because it's just a joyful way to live, right mm-hmm. I think that I think that kind of art and beauty is all around us if we just have eyes to see, and we it's just for fun. it can just be for pleasure. yeah. Yeah I know I I don't know I feel like growing
0: up very like I have German ancestry and like very I don't know kind of waspy too but like there's so much seriousness and like you have to have a purpose to everything and you have to be like very efficient and these are stuff that I'm still like trying to undo in my programming today <laughs> right you too totally. and it's such a like mind shift to be like I can do this just because it is really fun and it brings me pleasure and it's pretty and it whatever like it's (laughs) not something I'm used to which which like if I'm just going about my everyday life like I don't necessarily notice because it's so ingrained and then we start talking about like creativity and doing it just because you like it
1: yeah and I mean, like people say this so much; it's a cliche. But kids know that instinctually, right? Like they will find the fun yeah. thing to do in the room, even if it annoys everyone around them, and they will just do it <laughs> because that is how we are wired. So, re- like, I am totally, totally serious too. Like, I can overthink anything, but the more I allow myself to just lean into pleasure, the more, the more alive I feel. And and yeah. honestly, like if you've made anything, if you've written something, or you've baked a cake, or whatever, like usually you have to pay attention to like, what do I really want here? Like, if you want a cake, you don't just want a cake, you want a specific kind of cake. And like, if you want carrot cake, an angel food cake really isn't going to cut the mustard. It matters what we're, what we're hungry for. Right. And allowing ourselves to just feel that hunger is really liberating.
0: Yeah. You've got just the best metaphors. (laughs) <laughs> feel our hunger, like whether this is a literal hunger or just like what is our creative soul hungering for? Yeah, yeah, I like it. Um. So, oh, okay. Well, I guess kind of still, still in this, uh, this same vein, um, of. You had mentioned, actually, I was thinking too, when you mentioned the supply chain and like how much connectedness is required, like just to exist in our world. Um, and it, you reflect in some of your book, like, and I'm reflecting too about how we are so individualized and like our, are we feel so disjointed from each other. Like at least here in the United States, we feel that a lot of the time, um, and think of us just like in our little silos, but you were sort of challenging us to think of creativity as a more like, communal and shared thing. I was wondering if you could like help explain a little bit more. of that.
1: Yeah, you know, I mean, our, our idea of a creative person is somebody that's like up in their attic, all by themselves coming up with mind blowing ideas that change the world without any outside intervention. And it's like, like, okay, I read this book by a woman named Ula Biss. It's a book of essays. Um, it's called Having and Being Had. And it's she's a poet. And she also, the book is basically about capitalism. And she just points out, like, all of those people in their attics, someone's emptying out their chamber pot. Somebody is bringing them food. Like, <laughs> even the most individualistic, lone wolf type creative, like, someone is cleaning up after them. And why are we not looking at the people who are cleaning up after them and honoring their part in the creative process? Like there's this hilarious, there's, oh oh my gosh, this is like the most hilarious and also terrible thing. So Virginia Woolf, the the writer who famously wrote A Room of One's Own, who talked about like how important it is for women who are creative to have a room of their own where they can shut the door and keep everyone (laughs) out. She had a cook that worked for her and she would regularly like come into her cook's bedroom and like invade her space refuse to allow her a lock like to her own household (laughs) staff she would not allow them the luxury of a room of their own that would not be invaded by their employer i mean the 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 ridiculousness of that I was like oh my gosh Virginia Woolf why are you an asshole like (laughs) like we all depend on each other we depend on like in the in the pandemic we depended on the people who were willing to stock the grocery shelves I was never more aware of that so any creative person is dependent on the people who make their life possible or they are the people like I'm a working mother right like i make life possible for the people in my life and that work is important too like i i think we see this dichotomy between like the work we do in our households and our creative work and i think that that line is a lot less clear than our culture would tell us that it is and i think knowing that is important and i think when we realize that creative work and our everyday work all of it is honoring. All of it is super important. Then we have more connections to other people. We're kinder to the other people around them because we see they matter in whatever genius ideas that I have. And their their labor is making all of it possible. Like all of our collective labor is making all of this stuff possible. And without it, we're yeah. all sunk, right? Yeah, yeah. That reminds
0: me of some like essays and stuff that I've been reading in the last year probably by some feminist writers mostly on Substack, but like about the invisible labor of of women and mothers especially um or like this idea of this like brilliant artist or brilliant writer who just comes up with these amazing ideas because he has this family or this whatever or he doesn't have anyone else to attend to like who are people who are taking care of his needs right um so i mean there's there's like I kind of go two directions with that that there's how how do women or mothers who are often cast as like the the person who is in charge of more household tasks and stuff or or doing like two jobs of work and then house um how do we allow them or us like the space to be creative if if it is really like a space where like Writing is not done well with little children running around. Let's yeah. let It's really hard to do that. Or so that's like on the one hand, but I'm also thinking like, how do we, how can we also reframe in our minds like the caregiving? And you and you write like some about this in your book, and I loved it. Um, but like how do we reframe caregiving itself as a creative task, or like all of our life maintenance tasks as yeah. acts of creativity also. Yeah. And, you know,
1: I don't want to like skate over the very real difficulty of like having a few minutes to think when you have young children or if you're caring for somebody with dementia. Like it is limiting. It is limiting. And there is creative work that's not going to get done because of that. And that can be a real loss. Like there are plenty of brilliant women who simply did not have the time. Mm -hmm. And I think that we should grieve that. But at the same time, I do think that sometimes our culture says, if there are limits, then creativity cannot happen. And sometimes creativity happens in the cracks of our daily life, and it is still important. It is still Mm -hmm. worth doing, even if it's only for 15 minutes even if nobody ever sees it, like, ideally, we would be all set up to share our work as widely and as often as we would like. But nobody has that. I mean, like, the people that I admire le- most as as creative people don't have that luxury. You know, they're not super famous. They don't have maids, <laughs> right? <laughs> Many of them have chronic diseases. Many of them are caregivers. And I admire the fact that they put those things alongside each other and they say, mm-hmm. not that they have to choose between one or the other, nor that they can have it all, but that both of those things are, imp- all of those things are important. And the work, the work can happen in small ways and still be meaningful.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you find creativity in the cracks, you said.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah, I, I wrote this story to you, but um when i so like shortly after the birth of my first kid i had a spiritual director who was great hi Corey. um but she i was really struggling with like how do i access my spirituality like like i used to you know meditate in the mornings or like have more time to journal or like read things and it felt like i i just either i didn't have time for it or like i didn't have the brain space for it anymore um and it felt really weird to feel like my Spirituality, which I think can also be like a form of creativity, like it's creative spiritual expression. I right, yeah. 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 Um, but she was really helpful in like reframing that for me and being like, like you can be experiencing spirituality through like mothering or like how like how you are mothering your kids. That is how God is mothering you. And like it didn't it didn't have to be like this like chunk of my life that I set apart anymore like do a spiritual practice but it was like your whole life is the practice and that yeah and like maybe in the future you can you can chunk it off again but like also your life is just the practice and that is that is a perfectly valid way to do this
1: yeah I'm just so I'm like makes me so happy that your spiritual director said that to you and like I think women have been quietly whispering that to each other for a long time in our in our society because it's like Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you're familiar with the work of Kathleen Norris, but she talked about how, like, um, in, like, if you think about what ancient, like, Hebrew practice was, the women were in charge of a lot of it. Like, keeping kosher, that is a spiritual Mm. practice that involves cooking and cleaning, right? Like, Mm -hmm. they were in charge of a large portion of the daily ritual practices of their faith. And and it sort of, I mean, like all of those nitpicky roles in like Leviticus and whatever, it's like, Kathleen Norris points out, like, it's like, God cares about what we're eating and how we're dressing. Those things are important. So even though like, I don't always love the way that comes across as like controlling and like limiting, there is sort of an attention to the detail of household labor. That is quite beautiful, right? The way you you carve your meat matters. The way you put on clothes matters, and God cares about those things, and so they are inherently spiritual.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I I keep using the word reframe, but I just love these reframes so much. Yay! Like they feel really like refreshing. They're just so refreshing. To be like, yeah. Wait, what about this? ah, this is available to everybody, or the little things count, they, it's not like, yeah, it, it all counts, it all counts for something, we don't have to discard and be like, that's the non-creative, that's the non-spiritual, that's the whatever,
1: like, it's all just, it's all together. Totally. I think our culture likes segmenting things like, you know, like body and mind or like spiritual life and everyday life. And it's all crap, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's all one thing. And like this idea that we're supposed to be doing all of these. It's like in school, right? You go from like math class (laughs) to science class to social studies. And it's like, okay, so so science and social studies probably have something to do with each other, (laughs) right? (laughs) english yeah. and i mean you know like all of those subjects the lines between them are not nearly so clear as we think and just yeah. thinking about everything in a much more holistic way i think is very freeing yeah i love it well i don't know
0: if you have any like takeaways or like reflections that you might want to leave our listeners with
1: gosh you told me you were going to ask me this question and i probably should have I mean, if you have said all the things, that is also okay. No, it's okay. You know, I think, I think I always feel well. One of okay, one of the things that started me writing this book was like during the pandemic, my life was really quiet, which has mm-hmm. I've just really realized throughout my life that that is a blessing to me to have a very quiet, routine based life. Right? Like, okay, I'm neurodivergent. This is not a shocker, right? Mm-hmm. But. I realized that alongside that deep feeling of just gratitude that I had, that my life could be so quiet was this deep sense, this deep anxiety that I struggle with all the time thinking like, but is it enough? Is it enough? Is it enough? Mm -hmm. Even more specifically, like it's not enough. It's not enough. It was like a drumbeat in my head. Like what I'm doing right now, this thing, it's not enough. Like I'm not working hard enough. It isn't important enough it isn't spiritual enough. It's not woke enough. It's not parenty enough, you know, like all of these different things. And like, I'm just really like, I have to breathe several times a day and just remind myself like, that is a lie. What I'm doing right now is enough. It is enough in and of itself. It is enough for me to waste my time. If I want to, it's okay. It's okay for me to waste my time playing a silly game on my phone if I want to. If that brings me joy, like what a what a freaking privilege it is to have joy in this yeah. world for five minutes. Yeah. Doing the laundry, that is enough. Publishing a book that might sell 20 copies, that is enough. You know, like <laughs> these things are enough and it's okay. It is okay for what I'm doing in this moment to be enough. So I hope that people... Whether they label it creativity or not, that they walk away with the message of like what I'm doing right now is enough in and of itself,
0: mm-hmm. well, that resonates really hard with me, and I'm sure that it will resonate a lot with our listeners too. thanks, yeah, cool. that is thank you so much for your words of wisdom like you. Know, you... I feel like done a lot of like like and a lot of thinking and obviously a lot of studying too but like you just have a lot to offer people and I really appreciate that thank you Christy. I appreciate that